It's good to be with all of you this Sunday morning. Um, my name is Wayne Park, and it's continually my privilege to serve this community of believers um, here in Woven. And um, we've been in a series. We've been in a series called Oikonomica. Oikonomica is Greek for economics. And so this is me, the pastor, unable to stay in my own lane, veering into all of your territories of expertise, We've had these med center uh, meditations that have been going out to people, me trying to talk medicine. Every now and then I would ask Paul, what's the cost per barrel? Because I can't stay in my lane. I want to find out what's going on in the world and see how theology and the Bible is sanctifying Monday to Friday. So this is important for us. So when we talk about economics, what we're talking about are these big things, these macro concepts of trade and commerce we're talking about what many of you are working through from Monday to Friday. After all, the cost per barrel, I do believe, affects many of our living situations directly here in Houston. And so we're asking these questions about economics, and what I want to do is reiterate the three foundations. I've established three foundational principles for this series on economics. Hallelujah. Three foundational principles, and it's no skin off my back to repeat those every week. The first guiding principle, the foundational principle for this entire series, I think it goes without dispute. There's no way not to interpret it this way. The first one is the poor come first. And I know that this is revolutionizing a lot of our thinking, my thinking, your thinking. The poor come first. And there's this thing called the preferential option for the poor, where we are putting the needs of the poor before our own, where we are preferencing the poor. In fact, the way we take the moral pulse of a nation can be determined by how we treat the poor. The second guiding and fundamental principle, the poor come first, second, is the best way to serve the poor is to create wealth. Now, I know that we can, uh, we can talk about trying to distribute wealth or redistribute, but what we're talking about here is actually a little bit different. We're talking about serving the poor through creating a larger pie. We're talking about human flourishing and enabling people and giving them the dignity to find a way to create wealth for themselves, and giving them access ways and pathways to capital so that they too can also experience flourishing. And the third foundational principle is therefore, and this would seem to be kind of contrary to the passage we're going to read today, therefore the pursuit of wealth, but you got to hear this delicately, the pursuit of wealth is appropriate and reasonable if... Now, we're not talking prosperity teaching here, no. We're talking about the pursuit of wealth is appropriate and reasonable if the primary motivation is to serve the poor. If our first motivation, if the reason we go into business, if the reason we go into medicine, if the reason we go into economics or oil and gas is expressly with the purpose to serve the poor, then we're 
posturing ourselves in a way where we can use our wealth and not be used by it. We can use our wealth and not be used by it. The pursuit of wealth is appropriate and reasonable if the primary motivation is to serve the poor. And that fundamental shift is what we're talking about. This internal shift that says, I'm not making money so that I can get rich. I'm making money because my money doesn't belong to me. It belongs to God. And God actually is okay with sharing it with the poor. So I will make money. I will create wealth. But I will also create it for the benefit of others, not for myself. So... This is the foundations for this series, and uh, today we're talking about we're talking about value. We're talking about um, this idea, this concept of value, and I want to set the stage here. I want to set the stage to talk about this ancient idea, these scales. How much are you worth? How much is this situation worth? How much is it all worth? Starts off with a story about a man who didn't graduate from high school. Uh, he lived in Seattle. I heard this story recently. And um, with, with his minimal education, he felt called to ministry, but then went into business instead. He worked with his hands. He built cabinets. And he found that he was good at doing it. And he found that he was able to make money. And so in this cabinet-making business, he grew the business so that they started bringing in people to work for him, and he brought on more and more employees, and next thing you know, they have a mid-sized business. At the same time, the markets in China start creating prefabricated cabinets, and so he says, how are we going to compete? And so he develops an IT team, an IT department, and what they do is they give you, they build, they built the website, and they give you the opportunity to design your own cabinets online. So design your own cabinets, so that's how he competes. Anyway, this guy's doing pretty well, mid-sized business. He's a Christian that went into the business as ministry. He went into business for the sake of making money with the perspective to serve the poor, and therefore every worker on his floor, every worker is given respect and dignity, regardless of their background or orientation, regardless of their ethnicity or whoever they are. He treats the worker with respect. And if you've learned this in school, that's been the whole tension between the socialist and the capitalist. How do we treat the worker? He treats the worker with respect. Anyway, so this is what he, this is what he shared with us. He, he shared this story that... Once a month, kind of like we do our noonday exam, and once a month he would have an open um, invitation, uh, a regular invitation to young entrepreneurs, business people who are Christian. And he would say, I will take you out to lunch, and we'll talk about the Bible, and we'll talk about business. And these people would come, and it was, it was invitation only, special invitation, so it's not open but this special invitation only, and they would come. But every now and then, there would be one young person here or there that would just either completely stand him up or show up really late, you know, not show up at all. And inevitably, he would pull that person aside. And he would say, we're talking about faith, but we're also talking about business. I'm a business person. And when you show up late or you don't show up at all, it tells me that you don't value my time. 
do you know how much an hour of my time is worth? An hour of my time is worth thousands of dollars. And when he said that, some of my classmates, they, they didn't like that statement. But for me, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a pastor. I don't live in those circles. That was like a revelation. That was a big, big insight for me. That you can quantify your time in terms of dollars. And therefore, you don't stand somebody who is worth his weight in salt or her weight in salt. You don't stand them up. And then you do the math, and if that's one hour, then how does this play out, and what is this person, what's this person's net worth in the end? That introduced me really to this underlying idea that's been living with me now for a long time, the idea of value. Are you worth your weight in salt? Are you able to recognize weight or value? And I find that oftentimes, especially when I talk with younger people, there's not this concept of value. There isn't this strong understanding that, that, that there's this thing of value. And so what I want to do today is look at a verse that I think is undergirded with this idea of value. As we talk about economics, you know, we've talked about demand, desire. We're talking about all these things. I think today we can talk about value. And I think we see a good example of this in Luke chapter 14, verses 23 to 25. So if, you're, if you have your Bible, look with me. Phones are Okay. Luke chapter 14, verses 23 to 25, a passage in Scripture undergirded by the simple concept of value. Now large crowds were going along with Jesus, and he turns and he says to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he can't be my disciple." This is not very encouraging. This is like Jesus followed by large crowds turning around and saying to everybody, go home. You're not worth, this. you're not up to snuff. This is a hard saying. And he continues in verse 27, if you don't carry your own cross and come after me, you can't be my disciple. These are not very friendly words. Your grace is enough. What, what did we sing this morning? Um, yeah, your grace is enough. That's all it. I can be Jesus' disciple. But the thing is, he says pretty explicitly here three times, in fact, you can't be my disciple. So we're beginning to wrestle with this. And then he gets into two stories in verse 28. Which of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first of all sit down and calculate the cost? to see if he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe begin to ridicule, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. This is something that I am notoriously guilty of. My wife knows. Oftentimes, um, financially over-optimistic. Well, do you understand the value? Do you understand what's going on here? I remember early on in my career as a pastor, an older pastor once asked me, well, what is your church's budget? And I was thinking, um, I don't know. And I remember feeling so small in that moment. Well, don't you know? Don't you know? What? I know today what our church's budget. I know many of the line items. But it was almost this challenge. Do you know the cost? Are you aware of the cost? And then he tells another story. He says, what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and think, 
whether he's strong enough with 10,000 to encounter the other coming with 20,000. This is notoriously the problem of young, testosterone-driven males. I can take him. I can take him. I got I can take him. No, you can't take him. Well, haven't you read about David and Goliath? You're not David. Have you counted? Have you considered carefully? Otherwise, Jesus says in verse 32, while the enemy is still far away, at least you can sue for peace. Think this through carefully. I don't need peace. I can take him. I'll take the situation. Jesus continues in verse 33, so then none of you can be my disciple. It's the third time he says that. You can't be my disciple unless you give up everything. So easy sayings of Jesus today. That's the title of today's sermon. The easy stuff by Jesus. Therefore, salt is good, but if salt becomes tasteless, how can you season it? You can't season salt with anything else. It becomes useless, worth only for throwing out For the manure pile, he who has ears, let him hear. So we have hard sayings, three hard sayings of Jesus. And what I want to do is look at each of these three hard sayings. Three hard sayings of Jesus. And we'll make our way one by one. The first hard saying of Jesus is in verse 26 when he says, If anybody wants to follow me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children brothers and sisters, even themselves, you cannot be my disciple. What do we do with this statement? What do we do with something that's so extreme? That word hate. Now, I think we can understand this. As I study this word hate, keep in mind these are Jewish people writing in Greek. And I think in the mind, it's a Semitic, it's, there's a Semitic sense, a Jewish sense where this comparison is made, it's not so much to say you have to hate them as much as it's saying in comparison to something, you love it less. So to say, in comparison to Jesus, you should love less mother, father, sons, daughters, etc., etc. In comparison to Jesus, we should love less. Now, I do think a good case is made to understand that verse in that way. However, I don't think we can escape the overall quality of this passage that Jesus is making it difficult. The point I think that's being conveyed here is discipleship and following Jesus is going to demand a lot more than we think. Discipleship is going to burn. I've said this before that if my following of Jesus does not leave me with my back a little bit wet, then I'm not working it. If discipleship of Jesus doesn't give us a little bit of sweat, then we're not working it closely enough. Jesus calls us to be disciples, and he makes it difficult. Discipleship of Jesus, it's kind of like, you know, one of my my friends once told me that the pain points... The pain points in your life are growth points. The pressure points are growth areas. If we're not experiencing some of that pressure, if we don't have a little bit of sweat dripping down our backs, then our discipleship needs to be challenged. It's not easy, and therefore, 
valuing this situation appropriately, I think, is what Jesus is getting at. Listen, in comparison to following me, if you're clinging on to these relationships, especially if they're unhealthy or toxic, I can't do anything with that. I can't do anything with you. I think this first statement, if I can summarize, is a challenge it's a challenge to something called individuation. This first statement is Jesus' challenge. If you are not a well-defined, solid individual that can follow me with your own two feet, I can't do anything with you. I think that's what he's saying. I can't do anything with that. There's a young man. He's not in this room, and he's obviously not even part of Kingdom City. Um, and I'll keep this very vague, but... I was um, having a long conversation with this young man, and, and I was helping him through some stuff, and I was sharing my testimony with him. And I shared about how in my early 20s, these are some of the things that happened, and I felt him. It's like, you know, the emotions were brewing just under the surface, and I could feel him getting really, really moved. And we talked for like three hours as I shared my testimony with him, and then at the end, I said, you know, this is what following Jesus has meant for me. You know, I want to invite you. I want to invite you to um, Sunday school. And I invited him to Sunday school the next morning, Sunday morning. Lo and behold, he didn't show. He didn't show. And I knew exactly why he didn't show. He didn't show because his mother was of a different religious persuasion, and she forbade him, this young man well into his 20s, to go to a discipleship, to go to a Bible study with a Protestant pastor, she forbade him, and because he was living under her roof, he had no capacity to say no. He missed an opportunity of a lifetime. Do you know how much an hour of my time is worth? I don't know if it's so much Jesus saying, you can't be my disciple, as much as he's saying, I can't work with that. When somebody says, Jesus, let me follow you, but let me ask my mother for permission first, I can't work with that. Jesus, let me follow you, but I have my husband, he kind of keeps me repressed or suppressed. I can't work with that. Jesus, let me follow you, let me follow you, but I, I'm so busy taking care of all of these needs, and, and I have no individual identity. I can't work with that. I can't work with that. I think the biggest thing that we take away from this message is unless we are self-defined individuals, unless we're self-defined individuals, we have no ability to follow Jesus because we have this inability to value ourselves rightly. We have an inability to value ourselves and say, this is where I end and the world begins. This is where I stand. These are my boundaries. And I have to be able to choose, within my own volition, I have to have my um, own capacity to make decisions. And if those boundaries are blurred, you can't disciple a person like that. You can't. In fact, there's a medical analogy for this. And maybe I, I wouldn't claim to get this perfectly. You can tell me if I've got it wrong. But there is, uh, there's, there's, there's this thing that floats in our bodies. Maybe it's floating in your body right now. It's called a virus. And the thing about viruses is that they, they're, they, they, they're different from the normal cells in your body. Viruses, they don't have a nucleus. There's no nucleus in a virus. There's no center. 
There's no identity. If it has no nucleus, it has no organizing principle, it doesn't have this sense of self-identity, therefore it's roaming around, floating around in the bloodstream, looking to cannibalize or take some, some material from, from the human body. These viruses, they'll float around. There's another thing about viruses. Many viruses, as I understand, they don't have like a lining. They don't have a boundary. They don't have a cell wall. Whereas you have cells and they have a wall, a cell wall, and the integrity of that wall determines immunity. But viruses have no immunity. They have no cell wall. They're looking to kind of take everything in and everything around them. Here's another thing about viruses. They have an inability to specialize. Cells eventually decide, I'm going to become a bone marrow cell, or I'm going to become you know, a brain stem cell or something. Viruses say, I don't know who I am. I have no nucleus, no boundaries whatsoever, and wh who am I going to be? Let me just latch onto this cell and take it, and it's like, it's like Agent Smith in the Matrix. It's like more, me, 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 me. That's also how cancer works. Am I right, Sue? So in the end, it's kind of like Jesus is saying, listen, you're either a leech or you're a disciple. You're either an you're either, you're either, you're either an individual or else I can't really, I can't work with that. So when he talks about this, this, this harsh saying, this first harsh saying, I think what Jesus is driving at is, are you free to make your own decisions? Are you not enmeshed? Are you not in codependent relationships? Can you stand on your own two feet? When I say, when I say jump, can you say how high? Can you go left with me? Can you go right with me? Because Jesus is saying, I'm going to take you through some interesting pathways of life. You're going to follow me through some hard ups and downs. Can you follow? Let me ask my mommy first. Can't do anything like that. Can't. <laughs> you know? You know how much an hour of my time is worth? Well, let me invite you to Bible study. Oh, my mom said I can't go. Okay, I'm not going to ask you again. In other words, I think what it requires to be a discipleship is, first of all, healthy individuation. If we can define ourselves as an individual, if we can say this is where I end, and this is where the world begins, we're opening up ourselves to discipleship. If we can value ourselves, if we can value ourselves. The second thing, second hard saying of Jesus. So here's Pastor Wayne trying to explain away the hard sayings of Jesus. Hopefully that's not what I will succeed in doing because they're meant to be hard. Jesus says in verse 27, whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me, cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me, can't be my disciple. Another hard saying of Jesus. Of course, we know what a cross is, right? It's a silver thing that I wear around my neck. I can just take on and off and wear that every now and then. But it's more than that. What is this cross that he's talking about? What is this cross that Jesus is talking about? See, oftentimes I think that, you know, in our culture it's easy to say, I'm forgiven, I'm free. But forgiveness without repentance, the cross without discipleship, this is a problem. You see, without value, a sense of value, how much is this cross going to cost me without 
value, you cannot disciple somebody because they don't understand what a cross is. Pick up your cross. Yes, I'll pick up that cross. I'll buy it 14 carat. I'll wear it around my neck. No, 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 no. A cross, a cross is a cost. That's what it is. Maybe, Larry, you can help me out here. I was looking for this word. There's a ledger term, an accounting term for something that's an expense. You know, this thing counts against your account. What is that word I'm looking for? This is the thing that will count against your account. That's what a cross is. It's a cost. It's something that will expense out of our account. But the thing is, when we read this, the, 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 the depths of that word cross, the cost, unless we understand value, we cannot know what the cross is. Unless we understand value, we cannot know what a cost is. I go through this all the time with my children. And that's why we have to teach value. And with my children, they say, I want that. Or I see that on TV, Daddy, can we buy that? And I say, do you know how much that costs? Well, it costs $500. Do you know what $500 is worth? $500 is worth, um, I don't know. I, can I check my bank, my piggy bank, and see if I have $500? Do you understand what that worth is? Teaching value and worth, that's an important thing. Unless we understand value and worth, Discipleship is just this vague, wishy-washy idea. Unless we understand value and worth, discipleship, it's just this kind of vague, you know, me and Jesus floating on the sea, you know, cruising somewhere and enjoying life together. No, there is a cost. I was at a meeting, um, and there was some debating going back and forth. It was not a church meeting. It was not this church meeting. <clears throat> and I expressed um, an opinion, and it was met with some disagreement, and there was some going back and forth on this. And afterwards, in the hallway, a gentleman pulled me aside, and he asked me, why do you, why do you think it has to be that way? I disagree with your assessment. Why do you think... Why do you think that, that if we go this way, why do you think it's, this is going to be the result? And my response to him, in the attempt to express my value, what I perceived was going to happen, my question to him was, what do you stand to lose? What do you stand to lose if things don't go the way you want it? If you... If, 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 if you don't get what you want, what are you going to lose? So we're kind of, we're pushing for different things here. If you don't get what you want, what do you stand to lose? And his response was, I stand to lose my soul. I stand to lose what I love. I stand to lose my principle and the things that I really believe in. I stand to lose this. And my response to this man, my response to this man was, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that if my opinion will cause you to lose things that are treasured and dear to you, but for me, what do I stand to lose? What I stand to lose are some of the biggest donors in our conference. What I stand to lose are some of our partners. We stand to lose our conference structure. We stand to lose our superintendent then as a result. We stand to lose some of our staff. And in the end, my own livelihood 
is going to be affected. I stand to lose very, very tangible things. This would be destructive to those around me as well as myself. You see, I think what I'm trying to say in this story is that when we talk about value, it can't just be abstract. It has to be liquefiable. When we talk about value, we can't just say, wow, whatever's on TV, I want it. We have to liquefy it. We have to be able to say, this is what it's going to cost. And in the process of learning and understanding value, then we can get to the place where Jesus says, will you follow me? There's a cost involved. Okay, if I follow you, this is what it's going to cost me. This is what it's going to cost those I love. This is what it's going to cost this is what it's going to end up. Discipleship must involve value. You see, the, the irony to all of this is it's kind of like a chicken or the egg scenario. I think what Jesus is saying is, you, unless you understand the value, of, uh, the value or you understand how to evaluate things, a situation, you can't really be a disciple. Unless you understand how to count the cost. That's where this phrase comes from. Count the cost. It's right there, actually, in verse uh, 28. If you can't count the cost, if you don't know the value of the cost of the cross, you can't follow. But the irony is discipleship is required in order for us to learn how to value life properly. Discipleship is how we learn how to evaluate things in life. Discipleship actually is the way so I don't come before you today to say, well, you know, I understand the value of things. I understand the cross. I come to you as a fellow disciple. I am still learning on this road, on this journey of life. I'm still learning how to treat others as I want to be treated. I'm still learning in this world that what I reap, I will sow. Am I a disciple? I'm on the road, just like all of you. And on this road, Mama was always right. Do unto others as you want done unto you. If you reap, you will sow. These are the basic value systems of the world. Evaluate the world properly. Let me tell you a quick story that I, I heard on the radio. Um, actually, I heard it on the Conan O'Brien podcast, of all places. And it was a story about um, a man who was cured of cancer. This man was pure, cured of cancer by a doctor. And they performed the surgery and everything was all removed. And out of tremendous gratitude, this man said, Doctor, I'd like to take you out to dinner. So he takes the doctor out to this great, huge, like, you know, um, and seafood dinner, and they, they enjoy the dinner together. I mean, the doc, doctors are busy people. So he takes time, and he actually shows up and has dinner with his patient. And then when the dinner is over, the check comes, and then the man who was cured of his cancer picks up the check, and he says, how shall we take care of this? And the doctor said, oh, okay, we'll split the check. Maybe he, lost, maybe, maybe he was cured of cancer, but he didn't get value. He didn't know how to correctly evaluate the situation. 
To be able to evaluate a situation means you know how to behave. You know how to act. You know that this is an important situation. You know this is someone that saved your life. How do we value properly? Well, I mean, we just split the check. It was, you know, $50 for me and $50 for him. But in the end, you know, value, it's got to be liquefiable. Third hard saying of Jesus in verse 33. So then, none of you can be my disciple. So that's the third time. You can't. In fact, he says it now to everybody. All of you can't. This is not a very friendly statement. None of you can be my disciple unless you give up everything you possess. Now, I could just drop the mic and walk away, and that's all. But the thing is, that's, that, that, basically, that basically disqualifies every single one of us in this room. None of us can be disciples. So, Jesus, what are you saying? What are you saying? None of us can be disciples unless we give and we sell everything. The thing is, this statement... I think it has to be taken into account with the balance of Jesus' sayings. You can't be my disciple unless you sell everything. How come he allows Zacchaeus to give only 50%, which even in that is his own right is a lot. You know, Jesus is saying strong things here, and yet the early church was built, as I've said before, in the homes of wealthy Greek patronesses. Not everybody gave and sold everything and laid it at the apostles' feet. No. There were people who used their wealth. They used it wisely to build up the kingdom of God, to serve the poor. They didn't use that as an afterthought. They came from that perspective. How are we using our wealth as mission? And so what we're talking about here is a hard saying. And I think what we take away from this Balancing it with the rest of Jesus' statements, I think we have to hear that discipleship is not easy. Discipleship will demand everything. Because even though we can find ways to kind of lessen the saying and saying, Jesus, well, you know, you know, he didn't really mean it, or you know, in different parts of the Bible he said different things, or this is hyperbole, there still is a bite. Let me tell you a story about somebody that took these words so seriously. His name was Anthony. Anthony lived in the year 251, early, early church. He was uh, born in lower Egypt. And Anthony had parents who had money, wealthy landowners. They had money, and they had resources, but then they died. They died. Both of his parents died when he was 18, and they left him with all of their wealth and his sister, his sister. So what does Anthony do? He decides to hear these words, unless you give up all of your possessions, you can't be my disciple. And he takes that literal. Some of the surrounding neighbors, you can have this much acreage, you can have this much acreage, takes it, sells it, and gives all the money to the poor. And then Anthony lives the rest of his life wearing burlap and living in the wilderness. In fact, today he's recognized as Saint Anthony, the father of all monks. But the story is interesting. You know, not only that, while he's at it, um, before he goes off into the wilderness, oh yeah, there's my sister. What am I going to do with my sister? So he drops her off at a convent, and he leaves her there, and then he goes off and he does his own thing. 
It's an interesting story. I'd like to interview. If I were to interview Anthony today, uh, you know, like, hello, this is Kermit the Frog interviewing St. Anthony. We're so happy to meet you. We want to hear your story. St. Saint, Saint Anthony, please, tell us, tell us what, 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 what went through your mind as you dropped off your sister at the convent. Well, I don't, I don't know. I just have to kind of get rid of her. I mean, she couldn't follow me around. Wow, she must have felt really valued by that, okay? Well, St. Anthony, tell me, what did your parents think about you selling all of their stuff and giving it away? And Anthony says, uh, well, well, oh yeah, by the way, they're dead. St. <laughs> Anthony, tell me, how hard was it for you to part with all of that stuff? Well, I don't know. I'm 18 years old. What do I know? I didn't work for it. I just gave it away. I mean, the interesting thing is, sometimes I think the only people that make good disciples are the people that have no idea what value is. Because if I have no idea what value is, sure, I'll just give everything away, and I'll just kind of live with Jesus in a tree somewhere, and I'll be free, and I, I, I'll be free to follow him. But the thing is, no, no. Because as you live your life, the older and the more mature we get, in order to understand how to function in this world, even if you are a monk, you must understand value. You have to know, because if you don't have any value in your relationships, or your concept of money, you're not going to be able to have any interpersonal exchange with another human being. How should we, what should we do with the check? So there's a real irony to this. Listen, Jesus means it. Discipleship will demand everything. And as I said at the outset, unless our backs are a little bit wet when we're following Jesus, unless there's a little bit of a workout burn, unless we're struggling with this a little bit, and we're meant to struggle with these words. That's why I don't want to downplay them. We are meant to struggle with these three sayings of Jesus. Unless we hate father, mother, brothers, and sisters, unless we carry a cross, and unless we give up all of our possessions. Yes, that's not easy. They're meant to make us struggle. There's one last part to this, and I want to conclude with this. This is verses 34 and 35, where Jesus all of a sudden changes the subject and starts talking about salt. He says, therefore, salt is good, but if salt loses its taste, then what can you season it with? It's useless. Anyway, what does salt have to do with anything? It actually has a lot to do with it. It ties back in. It's a wraparound statement. He's talking about worth, your weight and salt. He's talking about value. That's why these stories about the man who builds the tower or the other man who says, I can take him, I can take him, you know, who wants to go fight somebody that's twice his size. If you don't understand value, if you don't understand your, your fighting, you know, if you don't understand your weight class, you know, if you were wise, you would treat the situation, you know, hey, let's be friends instead. Because I can help you, you can help me, we can both walk away, we win. Do you understand these basic concepts? Let me, let me tell you one last story. Because the thing is, when it comes to um, value, I still make mistakes, and I'm still learning to correctly evaluate situations. And there was something that happened, this was not recent, to my credit, this happened years ago, years ago. Years ago, I had a friend in seminary, um, and let's just call him Joe. And Joe knew that I was friends 
with a guy named Eric. We'll call him Eric. And this happened out in, uh, well, it doesn't matter. And so Job, he says, wow, Wayne, you're actually friends with that pastor. And, you know, I know that pastor in that church, they have an opening. And I want to get a job at that church. That's a cool church. I want to work at that church. So can you write a recommendation for me? And I said, sure thing. Yeah, yeah, man, you're my buddy. You're my buddy. I'll write this stirring, great recommendation and, and give it to my, my friend Eric. And, you know, let's see if they can get you the job. A couple of days later, I got a phone call from Pastor Eric, who pastored that church where my friend was applying. And, and Eric, he said, Wayne, we got this recommendation from you for this role, this position we have open for, for Pastor, Pastor Joe. And I'm just wondering how you came to this, because we interviewed him, and he was not what we thought. And I said, well, uh, uh, I, I, I don't know. What, what was wrong with it? And then he said something to me, Pastor Eric did. He said something to me that stuck with me. What he said was, Wayne, the only reason we considered this candidate was because of you. We've had 200, 300, maybe even more candidates, people applying for this role. The only reason we gave him an audience was because you wrote him a recommendation, and we know you. And that had the simultaneous effect of propping up my own sense of value. Oh, my words have weight. But at the same time, kind of rebuking me. Because what he was in intrinsically saying in that statement was, this is a terrible candidate. And if you're sending him to us to work for us, you're, you have not thought this through. You have not thought this carefully through and what this implies for us. If you like him so much, you hire him, but he is not fit. You cannot recommend something that's not safe. And in the end, you have not correctly evaluated the situation. Those words turned out to prove correct. Pastoral ministry is incredibly difficult. But this guy really could not hold a job. In the end, he could not hold a job. He's still my friend. But would I recommend him to work at an esteemed colleague's church? Not anymore. Why? Because I had to learn through this process how to correctly evaluate, not just a person's weight and salt, but also evaluate how this plays out in the relationships. If I don't play this out correctly in the relationships, if I don't feed the powers that be, if I don't work with my board, if I don't respect my parents, if I don't treat my wife fairly, you know that stuff comes back to hurt somebody in this room. Who is that? Me! So if we don't think these through carefully, what happens is not only have we misvaluated this, misevaluated situation, who do we lose? Who loses value? Who loses value? Me. That's, I think, what this statement is about. This last statement here is if we don't understand how to value, if we don't understand how to correctly evaluate the situation or correctly evaluate things, we ourselves end up losing value. We ourselves end up looking bad. We ourselves are the ones saying at the dinner table, who's going to cover the check? Oh, man, that just made you look so bad. Like, do you realize what you're doing? Do you have any awareness? Friends, all of us are on this discipleship journey. 
I think it's a little bit unfair, I'll admit, I'll just say this, that Jesus is saying, either you get it or you can't be my disciple. But here's the thing, in order to get it, we have to be discipled. Disciple me so that I can get it. And I, I would think that Jesus would oblige. I don't get it, Lord. There's so many things that I'm just like, duh, I don't get it. I don't have a sense of value. I don't understand the weightiness of things. Teach me. Friends, discipleship happens with all of us. Our, se our second mission priority is intentional discipleship. I hope that all of us here are taking that to some degree. You're discipling somebody that's younger, maybe here in Kingdom City, maybe in your office place. You're, di you're intentionally working with somebody because discipleship really is not just a program where you're sitting down and you're just imparting information. Discipleship is teaching them what mama taught me. It's the ancient paths. Discipleship is saying, listen, you understand what you reap, you will sow value. You understand that if you treat with disrespect, in the end, the world will only give you disrespect, value. Teach somebody that. Teach somebody. Because in the process, you are making disciples. Finish up with this. Three principles, three, three steps that I think summarize this entire talk. Three things to take with you as we go back into the world. We've been talking about economics. Last week we talked about demand. Today we're talking about value, about scales. I do think that there's tremendous implication here, not just for money, but workplace, interpersonal relationships, you know, sometimes power dynamics. What is the significance? What is the net worth of your company? What are you truly doing through your practice? Do you understand what we're doing here? Yeah, we're doing this. No, it's bigger than that. Do you understand what's at work? So, three ways that value affects our discipleship. Finish with this. Number one, without a sense of value, without a sense that this is how things are in the world, that either we Respect the world, or we will be disrespected. Without a sense of value, we can never really become disciples because we simply cannot count the cost. Without value, we can't become disciples. Why? Because we don't know how to count the cost. An inability to know how to cover the doctor's bill. An ability to know how to conduct oneself is necessary because that's what counting the cost is. If we can count the cost, then we are positioned to become a disciple. And that's the second principle. When we understand value, we become worth our own weight in salt. When we understand value, we become worth our own weight in salt. Do you know somebody that is weighty? You know that this person, you don't mess with this person, not because they're serious, but you know that there's depth. And I'm not even talking about wealthy people. I'm not just talking about wealthy people. You know when somebody has a backbone, when somebody has built their cell wall, when they've defined themselves as, a, as an individual, when they're choosing to follow Jesus, even when it's hard, you know that they're worth their weight in salt because they understand value. When we understand value, we become worth our own weight and salt. 
And third and last, third and last, weighty people make solid disciples. People who have substance, people who understand the commerce of the kingdom of God, people who understand we can talk about we want to serve the poor and do all this, but unless we're able to understand this in liquefiable terms, it means nothing. It's just a fantasy. What are the liquefiable terms? How exactly are we as woven serving the poor? With this new series, as we're talking about uh, 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 holistic outreach, how are we tangibly going to make steps in serving the poor? Weighty people make solid disciples. Friends, I want to invite the worship team back up, and I want to invite the rest of you to close your eyes. I don't want you to feel today like this is either I'm in or I'm out statement. I want to approach this proactively. Let's just assume we're all disciples. Let's just assume that we're all disciples. It's time for you to intentionally disciple someone else. It's time for you to intentionally disciple someone else. And as you close your eyes, what is the first face that appears in your mind? Who is the first person? It might even be your own children. Teaching children that an iPhone is not the same price as an ice cream is a thing. <laughs> That's discipleship. Teaching your children that if you treat somebody this way, they will treat you in return the same way. That's value. But not just children, people out there. I meet with young people here in Kingdom City, and I'm intentionally discipling them. We're working through stuff together. The thing that I find is, 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 is still this kind of nascent forming thing that they don't understand value yet. I mean, that's what happens when you only have no one to live for except yourself. Friends, who can you disciple? Never mind whether you make it in or not, whether you're in Jesus' club or not. Let's be proactive. Who can you disciple? Who needs to learn from you? Here at Woven, we're building a web, a web of interconnected relationships. They start here. They extend outside of this room. And then they extend to the north, to the oil sector, to the south, to Aleph. They extend to the different communities. So let's, in the spirit of building this interconnected web, begin to pray. Pray for that one person that came to mind as the worship team plays this ministry song. Think about that person, and I want you to pray for that person. Begin to activate that person in prayer, and begin to speak out your prayers. Let's pray.